Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner. I could probably stop saying that pretty soon, don't you think? It's been quite a while. I'll put that on my to-do list to take that off next week. Formerly Technology Corner for the week of May 6, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. You know, if I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody ask about or complain about the built-in disk defragmenter that comes with Windows, I'd probably have at least enough to buy some frou-frou frappuccino blended concoction from Starbucks, probably enough for several of them. That would be, of course, if I liked frou-frou frappuccino blended concoctions, which I don't. The problem with those built-in defragmenters in all versions of Windows is that they're clumsy, clunky, slow, and they hog system resources. That's why I've used and recommended Disk Keeper for many years, and that tradition continues with Disk Keeper 2007. Disk Keeper 2007 includes the ability to defragment files in real time. What Disk Keeper calls InvisiTracking allows the application to do this while not dragging down system performance. I've run applications that make extensive use of disk resources while Disk Keeper is manually defragmenting a disk, and amazingly, the performance degradation is so minimal that I can't even see it. You can run the application in manual mode, but you can also set it to full automatic. That's something that I haven't done in the past, because if I'm doing something such as, for example, recording TechBiter Worldwide, I want to make sure I have full disk resources available to me. But I've tried recording the program with and without Disk Keeper running, actually in manual mode, defragmenting as hard as it can, and I don't see any degradation. Disk Keeper provides a huge amount of information, so much so that it might seem overwhelming when you first open the program, but this version has at least made the system easier to use by expanding informational screens and providing a lot more feedback. Make sure you take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and take a look at some of the screen captures. The main screen for Disk Keeper shows the task that you might want to accomplish in a panel over on the left-hand side. Information shown in a larger area on the right side changes as you select different tasks. You can set Disk Keeper to run, as I said, automatically all the time but you may want to turn the process off at certain times, and if you do, you can do that on a special screen that allows you to make this keeper go to sleep at certain times of the day. But this keeper also includes a chart and a graph that show just how much of the system's resources it's using, and it shows that back over time. What's interesting here is that Disk Keeper only uses idle resources. Windows XP, for example, is able to keep track of how much processor time is idle. And Disk Keeper uses only processor cycles that would otherwise be idle. What's surprising is how little of even the idle resources it uses. In the process of running Disk Keeper recently, I noticed a screen that said the disk was healthy, but there was a warning and some information about where to look for a detailed explanation. Well, anytime there's a warning from any program such as Disk Keeper or any other utility that keeps an eye on the health of the system, I want to make sure I check that out. 
The problem in this case was the master file table, the MFT, was about 80% full on drive C, even though 140 gigabytes of the drive's 180 gigabytes were free. Now, the MFT is an area of the disk that you don't want to allow to become fragmented. Diskkeeper recommended increasing the size of the MFT. I also took a look at the other disks on the system. There are four disks on this system. On drive D, the MFT was at 99%. On drive M, the MFT was at 99%. And on drive N, the MFT was at 97%. So as bad as drive C was, drives D, M, and N were even worse. It was time to do something about it, so I asked DiskKeeper to modify the MFT on all four of the drives. After a little additional quick analysis, DiskKeeper told me that drive D, unlike the other three drives, would still have a fragmented MFT even after the modifications were made, and that it would need to run a special defragmentation pass when the machine restarted. Also surprising here is how quickly the process ran for all four drives. At the completion of the process, this keeper reminded me that I had agreed to a reboot, and away it went. The defragmentation pass at boot time took a few more minutes to complete, and once that was finished and I was back up and running again, or more accurately, the computer was back up and running again, I continued to be active at all times. All the drives showed as healthy. There are three versions of Disk Keeper. One is a $30 home version. One is a $50 professional version that has some advanced protections. And then there is Disk Keeper 2007 Pro Premier. That's designed for high-end systems and power users. DiskKeeper even provides a comparison chart that helps you figure out which one is right for you. And if you own an earlier version of DiskKeeper, you get a discount for upgrading. The overall summary, disk fragmentation increases wear and tear on your computer's hard drive. DiskKeeper puts the house back in order. TechBiter Worldwide Cats, well, DiskKeeper gets five. It's hard to imagine an application that does a better job of doing what it says it'll do. DiskKeeper eliminates disk fragmentation, and it doesn't get in your way while it does it. So overall, this is the disk fragmentation package that you want. Spam seems to be a common and frequent topic. People used to include things like no spam in their email address, thinking that it would somehow fool spammers' collection tools. So you'd see addresses such as dummy no spam at not very bright net. Well, the trouble with that is that it is trivial for a spammer to write a routine that examines all the addresses that are harvested and eliminate those no-spam or any other word that people typically used in there. The only people it caused problems for were those who tried to reply to the messages, failed to notice and remove the no-spam or whatever word was there, and then had to resend the message when the original bounced. Here's a question. I read that using the word at instead of the at sign when giving out your email address helps reduce the amount of spam that reaches you. In what situations is this approach important? I assume that on websites where my contact information is listed, but do I also use the word at in my general notice to everyone in my address book? Where else should I use it? Well, at one time, that kind of approach might have had an effect, a small one. It still doesn't hurt, but it doesn't help very much. I certainly would not do that on a commercial website. 
Instead, if you feel it's important to make sure that your address is not scrapable from a website, in other words, a harvesting insect can't go through and grab your address from a website, you can create a small piece of JavaScript that displays your email address but makes it invisible to web crawlers. This is trivial to do. No matter what you do or how you do it, though, you're going to get spam. I use a service called SpamArrest.com in conjunction with Spam Assassin, which runs on the server where my domains live. As a result, spam is stopped before it even gets to my inbox. And yes, I do have to look at all those unverified messages once or twice a day, but it takes just a few seconds for me to scan down through dozens of messages to find the two or three unverified messages I want and approve them. The rest are simply flushed away. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see an example of what I see when I go to the website to take a look at the unverified messages. And what you'll see is a huge, long list. And scanning down through that list takes literally 10 or 15 seconds, often not even that long. All I have to do is look for names that I recognize or subject lines that I've actually written. Here's another question. I had very little problem with spam until my email address was posted on a national website of a professional organization. Since my address has been posted, roughly 20% of my incoming messages are spam. Well, 20%. If you're at only 20%, you're doing far better than average. Every organization I know that tracks this stuff says that upwards of 80% of all email is spam. Certainly that's what it looks like as far as what I receive. Some are now pegging it at 85% to 90%. That question came from someone who had used a very basic email address, the person's first name followed by the domain name. So I said the address actually contributes to the problem. The domain name itself is easily found. Then spammers mount what is the equivalent of a dictionary attack, the same kind of attack that's used to guess passwords, because... Just the first name is used as part of the address. A dictionary list is going to hit that on the first round. Several years ago, I changed my address from just Bill to William dot Blin. The spam dropped dramatically. I still get very little spam at that address. Most of the spam I get comes to the address that I use when registering websites for clients. That address has to be public. That address, by the way, is any non-registrar mail is spam at blind.com. Have you ever visited Woot? Woot, that's W-O-O-T dot com. This is an interesting business model. It's based on the premise that you can sell anything as long as you tell people quantities are limited. With Woot, selection is limited, too. Most days they offer just one item, and you can buy no more than three of them. No rain checks, so when they're out, they're out. The ad copy is written with humor. It usually obfuscates any shortcomings of whatever they're selling, but they do provide a specifications section so that the awful, ugly truth shines through and consumers do know what they're buying. Occasionally I pick up something from Woot. Most of the time it's a decent bargain. Sometimes it's just interesting to see what they're selling because it provides a little insight into the high-tech marketplace. For example, a recent offering was a secure digital 512 megabyte memory card. 
And toward the end of April, they offered two SD cards for $6. That's $6 for two cards, plus $5 shipping. Somebody who bought three sets, that would be six cards, would have pulled down three gigabytes of memory for 23 bucks. That includes shipping. These are the same cards, by the way, that would have sold for 40 or $50 a piece not very long ago. I didn't buy any. I don't have anything that uses SD cards. In nerdly news, we're killing the messenger and ignoring the problem. Sometimes I think institutions of higher learning are managed by morons. Why? Well, here's an example. The University of Portland suspended an engineering major who happens to be an Air Force ROTC member for one year after he wrote a computer program designed to improve Cisco's Clean Access, CCA. He says that CCA is flawed. Michael Mass noticed that CCA could be hoodwinked into thinking that it was receiving data that identified a computer's operating system and antivirus as being current and up-to-date. Now, there's a big difference between a computer with up-to-date protections and a computer without up-to-date protections that says it does have up-to-date protections. Mass wrote a program that emulated CCA functions to examine vulnerabilities so that they could be fixed. The sophomore says he was planning to advise Cisco of the problems he found, but ah, the University of Portland got there first, froze his account, and suspended him. Mass had created a Facebook.com group to publicize the security research he was doing, and he was charged with violating the University of Portland's acceptable use policy. Explanation in plain English, if you find a problem with a major vendor's application, just shut up and ignore it. Try to improve the vendor's application and you will be slapped down. Coming soon, MicroWho or Yasoft? There have been rumors lately, actually rumors for quite some time, that Microsoft would be trying to acquire Yahoo. The deal seems now to be on the front burner, perhaps, for both companies, or at least for Microsoft. This is according to the New York Post. Yahoo has fallen far behind its rival, Google, but Microsoft probably sees some value in entering Google's market area because Google is edging into Microsoft's market area. The way companies work these days is that they do something good and then they keep expanding, largely fueled by Wall Street, until they do so many things that they do all of the things they do in a mediocre way. But I'm getting off topic here. According to the Post... Microsoft has asked Yahoo to resume negotiations. Those negotiations have been sputtering along for quite a while. Microsoft tried to acquire Yahoo a few months ago. Yahoo wasn't interested then. Wall Street values Yahoo at about $50 billion. Microsoft might be willing to offer substantially more than that. MicroWho, or whatever they would call the resulting combined companies, would own about 27% of the Internet ad market. That compares to Google's 65 That's an interesting number. Remember WordPerfect? Once upon a time when there were a dozen or so word processors in the market, WordPerfect owned about 65% of the market. What do they own now? Very little. Microsoft Word has the majority of the market. So Microsoft and Yahoo could start at 27%, but where might they go? 
Yahoo shares jumped about 15% to $32.20 in Electronic Trading Friday. Microsoft shares fell on the news 1.4% down to $30.53. The Wall Street Journal also had the story that reported the companies are in early stage talks. Microsoft sees Google as a long-term threat and the company may be more than a little sore that Google acquired DoubleClick last month for $3.1 billion because Microsoft was bidding for that, and oh, by the way, so was Yahoo. You probably know that I'm taking a look at the Microsoft Office 2007 suite. Not so far into uh, taking a look at it that I'm willing to really share much of an impression at this point. That would be unfair to everybody. So a full review of those applications is still some distance in the future. But I rather like the way the ribbon changes. The ribbon is the menu at the top, kind of a menu on steroids. The menu ribbon changes depending on what I'm doing so that the commands I need are there and the ones I don't need aren't. That's not yet an endorsement of Office 2007. But from the gloom and doom I've been hearing from the we don't want no kind of change know how, folks. I was expecting something far, far worse. Those who choose to stick with Office 2003 for a while are, however, going to be getting a security upgrade. Reports claim that Office 2003 will be hardened to match the security in the Office 2007 version. No release date yet for Service Pack 3. IT Vibe quotes Microsoft Office Technical Manager Joshua Edwards as saying, We're trying to take what we learned from building Office 2007 and bring as much of that as we can to Office 2003. The update, of course, will be free for all existing users. That doesn't mean Office 2003 users are going to get the nifty new interface that comes with the 2007 products, just the increased security. And for some users, that may be all they need. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 6, 2007. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there if you are so inclined. Thanks. Bye-bye.